Welcome to Real World Parenting, tips and scripts for parents on roads less traveled. I'm Dr. Laura Anderson, a child and family psychologist, and I'm glad you're here. As you settle in to listen, let me reassure you that you are in the right place. If you're a loving parent looking for answers and encouragement, and maybe even a chuckle amidst hard things. If you're a loving parent who's raising a child on a journey different from your own as a child, and are seeking a compass as you navigate uncharted waters. This is the place for you if you get the theory of parenting advice you keep hearing, but for the love of chocolate and curry and all other nearly perfect things, that theory never quite works as planned with your actual children. Finally, you are in exactly the right place if you're a therapist or clinician who works with kids, teens, and families. My intention is that these episodes will deepen your work and change lives. So in this intro, I get two to three minutes here to boil down 30 years of work in my psychology offices and my experience as a mom in the trenches and let you know what I'll offer with this podcast. I almost called it Lessons from Our Living Rooms or Couch Conversations because my offerings will be things I have learned and keep learning from the vantage point of both my living room couch and my therapy office couch. The aim of this podcast is to offer hope, support, wisdom, and experience in community, to provide clinicians a window into what our recommendations actually mean for real families in real life. We will talk all things kid and teen related and shine a spotlight on families navigating identities related to race, gender, and adoption. We will explore common child and adolescent mental health and wellness related topics. The hope is to leave you with a greater understanding of your child's needs and a, you got this, energy. Episodes will also feature actual practical tips and answers to questions, including, well, what do I say when, and what do I do when, so that you feel equipped to handle the day-to-day parenting puzzles we face. So pour yourself a cuppa, or lace up some shoes, or hide in your busy parent bathroom for a bit, and join me for head and heart conversations about loving and living with children walking past less often traveled. Have I mentioned I'm glad you're here? I trust that you'll be glad. Welcome, everybody. I am thrilled to be here today with one of my oldest, dearest friends and somebody who is well-versed in the conversations we're about to have. It is a pleasure and an honor to have with me Kwame Abernathy. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about ways to support a healthy racial identity development in black young people in the United States at this time. I mean, I'm sure many of these things are applicable around the world, but we're going to be focusing today on recipes and formulas to help inoculate young black youth against racism and also develop healthy ways to identify with being black that go beyond struggle and strife that are a cornerstone of their experience in the States, but certainly not the only defining principle. So I'm thrilled to be having this conversation. It's another one of these that can go on for hours and, and we're going to, we're going to fine tune it and speak today. And I will let Kwame say a little bit more about himself by way of introduction. So, so tell us uh, who you are and how you're joining today. I am the youngest son 
and the youngest child of Juanita Jones Abernathy and Ralph David Abernathy. Both of my parents were civil rights leaders. I was about to say civil rights leaders in the modern day civil rights movement, but I think you know the modern day civil rights movement is the one that we're in at present. So I would say the civil rights movement of the, uh, the 20th century. My mother received a telephone call from the E.D. Nixon, who was the president of the NAACP in Montgomery, Alabama, late one Friday evening. And he called to speak with my father to let my father know that he wanted to boycott the buses on Monday and he needed to go out to work. He was a Pullman porter on the railroad and he needed to go to work that uh, evening. He'd be gone for the weekend, but he wanted to give my father the marching orders um, and to go around town and to let everybody know that black people would not be riding the bus on Monday. And my father had just gone door to door in the membership drive um, for a local NAACP. And he was 29 and Uncle Martin was 26 um, at that time. So and they were the two youngest ministers in town you know, in Montgomery at the time. So uh, my father had just gone door to door collecting membership dues and signing people up for NAACP. And the president, E.D. Nixon, was asking him to basically do the same thing, but to let everybody know that no one was going to ride the bus on Monday. And because it was such a large area to cover over that those couple of days, he told my father to ask the other young guy, the new guy in town, Reverend King, over at Dexter, he could ask that other young man to help him and uh, they could probably uh, go through the territory um, during the weekend. They did just that and the buses rode empty on Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday. And at the end of uh, the day on Wednesday, they decided that they needed to organize, create some type of organization because it seemed like this was becoming something. Literally, the rest is history. And that's, that's the true story. 26 and 29. Yeah, 26 and 29. My mother would always say, you know, what is the average 26 and 29-year-old thinking um, at that point in time? Of course, they were both young husbands and both young fathers, each had just been recently married and each had a, a baby girl, you know, outside of providing for your family and, you know, going to work. What is the average 26 to 29 year old thinking about? I mean, certainly not changing the world with your own hands, but um, they literally did that. And I'm so very, 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 very proud of, uh, of their sacrifices, but most importantly, I'm proud of the fact that they answered the call when the alarm rang 
because alarm rings and in every generation, you know, we all have a moment to, uh, to answer that call and some do not, but I am forever proud of the fact that, that both of my parents did. They uh, bombed our home in Montgomery during the bus boycott and my mother was pregnant with uh, one of my sisters and my other sister was a toddler uh, there in the crib and uh, my mother lived through the bombing my father wasn't there she was there alone and she lived through the bombing and uh, you know I think about you know how my mother could have responded um you know, she could have, at that moment, you know, things had just gotten started. So she could have told my father that, you know, this road was a little too dangerous and that he needed to stop his involvement with the bus boycott and subsequently the movement because she didn't feel safe or the family didn't feel safe or whatever. But she didn't put any of those pressures on him at all. She strapped up and um, she turned to my father and she told him, you know, this is our life, and these are the sacrifices. And she never created any extra pressure on him to leave the movement or not to be involved. And I'm, I'm proud of that fact for her, um, as well as, uh, as, a, as a woman and as a wife, really proud of that, um, as well as so many other things. They both supported each other and, and stayed in the fight. Now we look back at this time and, um, you know, in this age of social media, you know, to be famous is so important to so many people. But at that time, in 1955, the attention that they were garnering was, was quote unquote, unwanted attention. Mm-hmm. And they were seen as rebel rousers. Um, publicity seekers um, because you know everybody in their right mind knows that to to seek these freedoms and these rights it's just you know unbelievable it, it, it would be unbelievable to think that America could do that overnight um, what America could even change in decades um, and uh you know, good Negroes of that day should know that. You know, anybody choosing choosing that path or this work, you know, would be doing it for self-serving uh, purposes as opposed to actually trying to, um, to make America live up to its creed. Do you think they realized so it, at the time, like, in thinking about it, I mean, it sounds like right folks from various different communities would have been nervous, I mean, in very different ways, but about what was happening and about the rebel rousing and the calling to question, you know, so many fundamentally American things at that time. Do you think your parents realized that they were going to end up being the pivotal change agents that they were with Dr. King and your dad and mom? And do you think they had a sense of that? Wow. I, I do. I think afterwards, you know, maybe in the 70s. Um, But during the 60s, no, I don't think so. Because, you know, I I remember my father saying in the, you know, the late 80s, 
not too soon before he died, I remember him saying, I can't make history and then be worried about my place in it. It was unpopular. I mean, it was an unpopular movement. And that's interesting, too, because the way that, you know, in a lot of the retrospective history is taught as this, like, hand-holding, peace-seeking, um, you know, calling upon everybody's higher good in a very calm and pleasant way, and that's why it worked, right? You, you hear a lot of white folks holding up Martin Luther King and the movement surrounding Martin Luther King at that moment in time as, like, the way to seek peaceful change because it... it is, is portrayed retrospectively in mainstream media as as calm, peaceful, and certainly not the you know the the looting and the scary demands for justice that we see happening now that seem untenable for folks. It's almost like a longing for this idea, even among the sort of like good white liberal folks who are hoping for change. The, this idea that can't we can't we go back to that place where this this hand-holding, peaceful approach is the one used to enact change. So, so hearing in stark contrast to what the experience was like, you know, living through it at the time and being under threat physically and, and emotionally and everything, it, it's particularly ironic. What do, what do you think your, your parents would say now? I know that's a big question, but like watching the, the, the recent climate the recent racial climate in the United States with the Black Lives Matter movement and police brutality and voter suppression and all, you know, I mean, we could jump off in a bunch of different directions, but what, what do you, what do you think their responses would be to what the dialogue has been given their role in the earlier parts of history around this? To say it's ironic is, is an, under, is an <laughs> understatement. Um, because, um, yeah, my father and Uncle Martin were branded as communists, as, you know, everything but children of God, just like what we saw and have seen during the past uh, two years, two to three years with Black Lives Matter war. And go even back to uh, the young people in Florida protesting um, against gun violence and their organizing and marching. That took place before my mother died, and uh, she was able to to uh, to see some of that organizing. And you know, I often remember that she had a dream um, about, let's say, maybe you know, twenty years before my mother died. She had a dream that she was marching for civil rights, just like she did in the sixties. Um, but she was in a wheelchair and she was being pushed by children of the civil rights movement. You know, the kids that she helped to raise and, uh, and these children that she knew so well, they were now the adults and we were pushing her in this march. And she couldn't figure it out. She kept looking. She's like, marching? Why are these, these young people, why are they marching? We used to do this in the 60s. They don't need to march now. And, you know, that was 20 years ago. You know, we fast forward. She was able to see, see us organizing, you know, before she died. And she always interpreted that dream to mean that we had as a race and as a country had advanced 
uh, too quickly or believed that we had advanced too quickly, had quote unquote arrived, when in fact we had not. She was always tickled when people would uh, post, uh, would have this conversation after President Obama was elected, you know, and they call it the post-racial moment. Right. the post-racial uh, era. She's always tickled pink when she hear that because she, you know, her response was racism is alive and well in America and it is not going anywhere. Has not gone anywhere and, and isn't. But then she'd also follow that up with, you know, I love America and all of her mess. Um, you know, <laughs> wouldn't choose to be anywhere else but here. Especially with the sacrifices that we've made to, uh, to get this country to this point. My father, my mother said that my father believed that one day that we would have a black president, but uh, he was not able to see that. But my mother was. Um, so having, I guess, you know, her emotions or my parents' emotions, you know, everybody and, and so many others that sacrificed uh, uh, along with them, I guess their emotions would almost, you know, travel like a, like a bell curve because there's a constant, it's a lot of up and down, a lot of up and down. Of, of course, a high would be, you know, the election of President Obama, but then another lull here we are with not the election of Donald Trump, but it's really, it's not about the president, but it's where the the attitude and the politics of the country, it seems, has gone. Well, and the backlash, um, right? The seeming the, backlash right. to having had black a black president. president. Right, and, the backlash of having had a black president. The threat that it appears right. to have emboldened and enacted among uh, among folks who, who aren't interested in racial justice and racial mm-hmm. healing. And so steps forward so, and steps back and... It's, yeah, exactly. So it's a constant up and down. And, it, you know, it's not, I don't want to say it was discouraging, but it's just a constant reminder that we had not come as far as, certainly as far as the world wanted to convince us that we had come in 2008 right. with the election of Barack Obama. But, you know, here you are in 2021 or 2020. 2021 and you can see you know yeah we really have not come as far as we as we thought we had there's a lot of work left over um to be done so i know for a fact that that's what they would be saying and just quote to quote old negro spiritual and knowing that we have all of this work left to do and we are still no ways tired that in mind with with all the voter suppression laws uh, that these you know these states are attempting to pass at present uh, leading up to uh, the midterm elections yeah we're no ways tired still 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 no ways tired so much work left to do it's almost as if we if we do not do it then the sacrifices that were made before it would be as if they were done in, in vain. You know, this next generation has got to work equal. Well, it's got to certainly be as committed as, as the generation of the 60s, if not more, for us to get to this next level of progress that we need to. A lot of the history was made by young people. Ooh. So, you know, Rosa Parks was the third woman 
who refused to give up her seat. The two the previous women, the first and the second woman, were both teenagers who sacrificed themselves. Oh, I did not know that. Right. And Frank, you right. know, she's a, a child. The uh, Ruby Bridges, the Norman Rockwell picture. You see the child um, in Little Rock, Arkansas, being ushered by uh, the National Guard going into school. She is uh, alive and well. I was just with her last year. You know, she's old enough to be my, my, my old sister. My, my, uh, she's young enough, I should say, to be my, my older sister. Yeah. So um, that's, that's modern history. I mean, <laughs> that, and this history was made by young people. I cannot reiterate that enough. That's really this, The marching started with, you know, the organizing, I should say started with those kids in Florida. Right, right. It's a, in some ways, things are, are equally flagrant as they were in the, in the 60s. And in other ways, racism no shape-shifted shape no to, be, to be sneakier. There are examples of less flagrant division. And yet that's some, in some ways kind of harder because it's, there's less concrete, there's no signage. Uh, not as much signage as there was before, and yet all of the implications of of racism clearly evident when you're willing to be in, informed. And so, I mean, that's what I hear here too, right? Because like part of what we're talking about today a little bit is like, you know, what what's part of the the formula if there is one for raising a young black child with a healthy identity? And part of what I'm hearing is you know keep your eyes open stay informed know your history right i mean i imagine that was a big piece of what must have shaped how your parents made their decisions what i mean do you think that was a big piece were you all just schooled constantly in history when you were coming up in terms of preparing you like how how did your parents prepare you to deal with being uh in the u.s wow so what do you think are the things that I mean, your family was in a really dis distinct place, you know, visible. And we've talked mm -hmm. about how that wasn't necessarily always empowering or positive. Right. So there's like extra work to have your neck out there a little bit. So obviously standing out and standing up for racial justice. But what do you think they did? On a day-to-day, -day. I mean, other than keep you informed of what's happening, teaching you history so you, you knew accurate. I'm imagining they untaught some of the history that you'd been taught. Was that part of what they did? So they, um, they constantly, you know, made us aware and uh, kept us always involved. My, um, if you look at pictures of the civil rights movement, you'll see three kids, uh, little children that are in, in these marches. And those were my sisters, my sisters and my brother. My mother and father took them on these marches. We took them on, on most of, of all of these civil rights uh, frays in Birmingham, the Selma to Montgomery March, uh, Poor People's Campaign. They kept them involved. My brother was arrested uh, with a mule train uh, as a part of the, the uh, Poor People's Campaign as they were moving from Mississippi going up to, um, to Washington, D.C. for resurrection during the Poor People's Campaign and, and at their station at Resurrection City. And my brother was, what, maybe 12, 10 or 12 at that time, if that much. 
But my mother, you know, always said that she kept them involved because she wanted them to know why their father was always out of town uh, during the week. Um, and Daddy would come back and preach on Sunday at, at, at the home church. And then he was back, you know, Martin was back on the road Monday through Saturday. So she wanted them to know why. My siblings integrated the, uh, the public schools here in Atlanta. Um, my sister, um, and, well, you know, and that was a lonely experience. My three siblings, uh, along with three of the King children, the six of these, you know, black kids, integrated um, Spring Street Elementary in Atlanta, Georgia. And each of them were alone in a separate classroom, making up that one black child. So they, you know, sacrifice, you know, personal sacrifice even for the children was, you know, that's just a part of, of, of our life. My other, um, my sister Donzele uh, was a part of, of a group that integrated the private independent schools here in Atlanta. Um, although she was not allowed to attend, she had to integrate the test taking process because at that point in time, and they just started taking um, a standardized test to enter, I guess the SSAT, to enter private school. So she had to integrate that process, which was, you know, a story, huge story in and of itself. But that was a part of knowingly or unknowingly, that was a part of, you know, probably knowingly, knowing my mother was a psych major, but she minored in psychology and majored in business administration. So. She, um, that was probably a part of her, her little experiment to make sure that, that we were involved and being involved, we would then understand the stakes of everything involved. Prepare um, you to the, be able to navigate different, different environments and move through white move spaces, through. feeling confident about what your family's wow. calling and mission and, and why that was happening behind the scenes too. So your your family and broader, but understanding that you could do hard things, a belief in yourself, pointing out injustice. You know, we've talked a lot of times parents and, and some of the audience for this podcast are transracially adoptive parents. And so it's a, it's a whole <laughs> other can of worms when you're a white parent trying to figure out how to impart the sense of, of uh, racial strength, just the knowing of the injustices that have been done. And so many folks I've had conversations with over the years are, are afraid to, to name the injustices out of a fear that their child will be jaded or will will uh, assume the worst in others and have this tremendous inward anxiety about how the world doesn't like them. And that's a grossly oversimplified statement. But, but the idea being that a lot of white parents, more particularly that I've had conversations with about, are, are tentative about involving their kids, about showing the scope of racism, uh, about, about teaching the parts of history that are really hard to learn when you are the person on the receiving end of the injustice and worried that, that, that you can do too much. Do you think there's a way that parents can do too much to describe the history and injustice and racism? What would you say to that? 
Oh, goodness, no. It's, it's not possible. You can't do too much. I mean, this is a mean, cruel world. I didn't really fully answer your, your, your first question, but and I'm going to come back to it. But even love, love is, is, is number one. You got to teach. You have to give love and you have to teach love. You have to teach a child to love themselves. And if you impart love in all of these lessons and teaching your children history, true American history, in its real raw form, it's not pretty. It really isn't pretty. But teach a child the truth. You also teach that child that regardless of that truth, that they are still valuable. This is something else that comes up, especially mm-hmm. for, for white parents, but possibly for everybody figuring out how to do this. Black people of all ages thrive, right? And that's the piece that can't afford to be missed either. So know your history about the injustice, but also know your history about who has thrived and how they thrived and wh- who the thought leaders are that, that young people are not being delivered in classroom textbooks. And so it's, it's know your history on two prongs. It's know it on the struggle and the injustice and the systems that are at work to undermine mm-hmm. black equity and also making space and time to celebrate and to hold up as mirrors people who have figured out how to know the truth and still thrive and still feel good about themselves and succeed because there are countless examples of that. Find the examples that will help to love on your child and help you to love on your child and, and, and create uh, a, a great cooperative uh, family environment. Just because you do all of these things doesn't mean that your child still will not uh, deal with this right. um, one-on-one. In fact, you're doing all of these things for when your child has to go or is faced with these uh, situations one-on-one. And one, how do they respond? And then two, how are they left after that encounter? How is their self-confidence after that encounter? Yeah, I appreciate that. I think sometimes, you know, well-meaning white parents are like, what can we do so that this doesn't happen <laughs> for our child? Or where can we live so that this doesn't happen? Mm-hmm. What no, school happen, can I put though. them in so that this doesn't happen? Um, you know, and, it, and in reality, it really is more about preparing for exactly how do they handle it at the time? To what do they attribute it? And then how do they, they, they integrate, bounce back and integrate and, and keep their, their head up in, in the face of you know, what, what will happen again and, you know, is a central part of life, but not the defining part of their lives. And then we sort of end, end on the like, and you thrive <laughs> and you thrive <laughs> with a skill set, a developed skill set to handle what won't be fair. And you mm-hmm. thrive. That's right. And you thrive. So. And you thrive. What uh, Maya Angelou would say, uh, and still I rise. Yeah or in spite of Black History Month in spite of or in spite of <laughs> Black History Month right right um, no, I mean, you know which is and still thrive and still thrive perfect but you have to look for them sometimes because of the larger Count, system countless <laughs> examples for that of that and you do have to look for them and without looking for them if you don't look for them 
then you you won't know the history to impart. Yeah, and you're left and, with mainstream media and mainstream textbook examples. So you're going to have a few musicians and some athletes, right? And right. and and that's about what you're going to get because of the limited depth that mainstream um, media affords <laughs> black people. So so ba- ba- basically, you're stuck with Black History Week. You know, it used to be a week, and it got expanded <laughs> to a month. So. We're back at without all of those things. Then, like you said, you, you're learning only a couple of, of the same names. But there are countless examples and ways in which a child can see themselves um, in any industry. There are people of color have been on this planet. As my mother would often say, she'd say, "16, 19." We've been here since 16, 19, 16, 19. And uh, recently learned that the first slave ship that hit here was 1526. Mm. So since 1526, there are scores of examples in every field, industry, genre, any area of black excellence or uh, people of color, excellence of, of anybody, of any color, that you can find examples to help feed that child would love those healthy examples of seeing themselves. Because, you know, as a psychologist, you already know how powerful it is or how affirming it is for for the ego to see examples of people that look like you on on, in different areas or things that you want to do. And uh, I just left the bookstore today and I was inspired because I looked at, you know, I guess it is we're on the heels of Black History Month. But they all of these black books sitting uh, at that first table as you walk in the door, uh, the teaser table. I was inspired. Now, of course, that's because I saw people that looked like me. I saw all of these authors and they weren't, you know, the authors that I knew of or learned about in high school or in college, high school at home, because there weren't many in high school, uh, black authors that we learned about in high school and school. But at a high school age that I learned at home or learned about at college, these are the new modern day people and names that I I didn't know. So I had to stop and look. And I saw this person's name. Then I saw this person's name. I saw this person's name. And I was like, golly, man, I need to write a book. Everybody's writing writing books. (laughs) I need to write a book. So something just simply, I mean, is something that simple. Yeah. You know, I just saw it for myself in my own life, on my own example um, earlier today. Do you, Kwame, like, so, and I'm thinking, sadly, we have to start looking at at rolling this piece together. But I remember distinctly, as as we both know over the years, you've been, you know, one of my greatest teachers and thought partners and supports in raising my black son. And I remember being, oh, just beside myself, even thinking about it now. I remember being beside myself at some point when he was clearly struggling um, about how to feel good about his skin or skin tone. Um, you know, he was in preschool and other kids were, were noticing differences and things. And I just remember feeling such a heaviness around that and speaking with you very clearly expressing like, hey, even in this very rooted black family, you know, civil rights foundational black family in Atlanta, it is still a journey. And there will be moments when 
you know, your son, any black child in the States, you know, is faced with the hard parts of navigating this identity and that it's a process of integration and it's a marathon, you know, not, not a sprint and that for better or for worse, the universe is going to hand you lots of examples <laughs> to continue to prepare your son and to, and to love into him. And that was super, super powerful for me in terms of clearly there are added layers in transracial adoption, but the point being that, that given what American history has done and shaped and handed to and imposed on uh, black youth, that, that it will be a process. It will be a looping. It almost feels like a, like a slinky spring or something <laughs> where you're like moving forward and integrating the, the, the loving, positive pieces, integrating the struggle pieces, questioning, you know, value and worth if there isn't enough reflection. And then if, you, if, it's, if you're given your history, when I'm thinking about this formula, if you're, if you're kept informed, if you're included in... Uh, movement and change, if you're taught your history, if you are loved into and loved on and reminded again, like not only, you know, who, who you are, but whose you are. And, and if you're, you're taught early on that it's possible to have complex competing feelings about the U.S., that you can love America and all her mess, as your mom said, right? Like that you can hold competing feelings about America, about the school you're in, about white people in general, about, you know, how, how all that works. Like it's complicated. And, and the importance of mirrors. Does it, does it feel like, I mean, I know there's a lot more to these conversations, but does that feel like a little bit of a recipe there when, when you think about the takeaways from today? Oh, there's no no question. That's that's certainly the beginning of the recipe. That's is uh, as people in in New Orleans say, you can't cook without the Trinity of what is bell pepper and and garlic and onions. Um, or my mother would say, you can't you can't cook uh, poultry without celery. There's certain certain necessary parts of the recipe, and you cannot raise a child without anything that you just described. You can't raise a child of color without those things. But what, as you were speaking, one of the things that I know that black parents yeah, have been pushing on their children for decades, that I know that a lot of transracial adoptee parents will probably have a problem with, is that you're always taught um, in a black family that you're going to have to compete twice as hard. You're going to have to work twice as hard. You're going to have to be twice as good. You're going to have to be the best of the best to receive the same level of accolades as your white counterparts. I could see that being an issue for a white parent having to make peace with that, that axiom and then teaching a black child that but it's more than just a motivating mantra that's fact right. it's factual unfortunately that's something also that that child has to learn this is america and it's not even just america because you know we have our own special history peculiar history here but you know the greatest lie ever told around the world is that you know color made matters so it's a it's a worldwide thing you know no one likes anybody black people i mean around the world 
And that's been like that for centuries. No, that right when they're navigating different versions of this around the globe. And I think to your point that, yeah, that, that it comes back to being able to, to name it and inoculate, prepare your child. That if we're not talking about the forces they will face, the, the systems that will work against them, then they're left to believe it's their own shortcoming. It's their own, it, you know, it, then they're left without words for what their experience is. And, and, and that's a recipe for disaster because it's going to become internal. It, well, it's going to become internal only. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, a child also realizing that it's, it's more than just them, but the child possibly would just think that it's, you know, just them. The damage to that in the long run, and, and, and if you're if 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 parents and uh, sort of bring it home here, if parents are educating themselves about how to talk about race and racism and history, uh, both the struggle part and the celebration part, then then it stops being less scary, and you can totally see there are ways to deliver. Uh, those messages and teach your children to see the systemic pieces as a as a way to prepare them for it. So they're not moving blind and not moving without knowledge and without w- without without history and support into the world, trying to make sense of things that are going to be crazy making if they don't know how to see it when it's happening for them and with them and to them. So I exactly. Already, I'm already, I'm already excited to imagine a series of conversations uh, for the two of us around race and all of this. But unfortunately, I've got to to wrap up today and say I really appreciate you um, being in this conversation. And I know that parents who are listening, you know, sometimes we just really need these messages reinforced over and over again, and an understanding of how powerful. Uh, each of the things we've talked about today is and for clinicians who are listening in if you're supporting you know transracial adoptees in your office or or any uh, black child in your office there are really important takeaways here today around supporting parent skill building and and humbling you know yourself to learn and show up and not shy away from these really important things that we need to be giving um, black kids and teens uh, to integrate. So integrate in a healthy, strong identity. And that's as parents, what we want for our kids. So thank you very much today for joining me. And I look forward to future conversations. Oh, Dr. Laura, Dr. <laughs> Laura, Dr. Laura, <laughs> it's been a pleasure, <laughs> truly a pleasure. Um, yeah, truly a pleasure.